So we're going to spend the next eight weeks studying the life of Paul. Uh, and uh, it's an incredible life. According to most Western historians, he is probably in the top five people that have affected the Western history. How about that? Uh, he wrote more than half of the New Testament, almost two-thirds of the New Testament. And before I begin, I wanted to give you a brief overview of, of his history so that you get a sense of it. He came from an affluent family in Tarsus, which is today a part of Turkey, and his family were tent makers. And he, his entire life, even as he evangelized, always supported himself by being able to make tents. Wherever Paul was, he was the smartest man in the room. He had an incredible intellect. He was sent from uh, Turkey, Tarsus, to Jerusalem at an early age to study with Gamaliel, who was the top Pharisee uh, teacher in all of Israel. And he studied with them, and he became clearly expert uh, on the Old Testament. He was able to understand it, and he had an incredible recall uh, and was able to really defend the scriptures in a powerful way. Now, one of the things that happened to Paul is that he became offended early at Christianity. We believe that he was in Jerusalem to hear Jesus preach. He was a contemporary of Jesus, about the same age. You know, Jesus lived to about 33 when he was crucified. And we believe that Paul was about the same age. And so he probably heard these messages. He heard these sermons. He heard the teachings. Uh, and he was offended by it because he considered himself a devout Jew, and he viewed that as blasphemy. And so as a result of that, he dedicated his life to persecuting the Christians. His life was to bring the Christians, bring them uh, into custody, men, women, and even children, put them into prison, in some cases to execute them, to stop this nascent movement from growing. Uh, and he was very good at it. And one of the things that you see, as we're going to study today, is how he got letters to travel to Damascus, and that is a hundred-mile trip over desert roads from Jerusalem to Damascus in order to go there and seize the Christians, men and women, and put them into jail and haul them back into custody. This is how convicted this man was. Uh, and so we're going to study this study his life uh, to see the lessons that God has for us. Now, this is one of the great conversions in the history of the world. And I brought my, my painting in so that you could see this painting painted in 1650, uh, how significant this was considered even in 1650 uh, in the growing Reformation movement uh, in the United States, excuse me, in Europe. And so you see this incredible painting and you see the impact of of Saul being struck off a horse and seeing the bright light. And by the way, he had two names. His Hebrew name was Saul, but his Roman name was Paul. And he was born a Roman citizen. That will become important. So as we see what I believe is the greatest conversion in the history of the world, well, also brings back to recall some other great conversions. One of them is Martin Luther. And you know, if you study Martin Luther, you recognize that Martin Luther became obsessed with his own sin. And here's Mark, Martin Luther, who will head up the Reformation movement. 
uh, to move from Catholicism into Protestantism. And he was really obsessed with sin. So he would go in to have a confession done. He would come out. He would immediately believe he had sinned again. He would go right back in. And then he'd come out, and he would go right back in. And so what was happening, he was making multiple trips daily uh, to the confessional because he couldn't get over his sin. Until finally the Lord revealed to him uh, the verse in Romans that the just live by faith. Sola fide in Latin. The just live by faith. Meaning you are only justified by the faith in Jesus Christ. Not by any confession that you make to any man. It is faith alone that saves you. And that completely changed his life. It changed changed Christendom. uh, And he became reborn. And the history of the world would never be the same. Now there is no more incredible conversion that we can find anywhere in the Bible uh, than the conversion of Saul. You can see the painting which speaks to you of that very fact. Uh, And the scriptures attest to his violent past. Make no mistake about it. This man had a very violent past. If you look at Acts 22, verse 4, it'll be on the board, uh, you'll see that Paul persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. You can also look at Acts 22, verse 5. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I, this is Paul, even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Can you imagine the the degree of enmity that he had? Look also at Acts 26, verse 9. Uh, He said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Augustine, that great uh, apostle uh, in the year 300, said of Paul's conversion, it was the violent capture of a violent will. And that's exactly what it was. That's what God did that day. A violent capture. How did it all happen? It happened by grace. As he said, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy, as we all know about it. And so the first sermon point that I have for you this morning is this. God does not care about your past. Only your future. Can I get an amen on that? Your past is irrelevant to God. You have that? Let's make that clear right now. I don't want you leaving here being burdened by things that you've done in the past or mistakes that you've done. Here's the thing. If you've come to Jesus Christ, it's buried. It's as far as the east is from the west. And the proof positive for that is Paul. Because if God could take some violent persecutor of the faith who was involved in seeing people even put to death and make him arguably the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. How much more us? How much more us? And this is really the great comfort we have. And so that's the essence of this message today. 
God does not care about your past. Now, the conversion story is vividly told uh, in Acts chapter 9. The scene begins, really, with, with Saul still breathing out murderous threats to the Christian community, getting uh, letters of recommendation from the Jerusalem community to go into Damascus and to seize those Christians to bring them uh, to prison. This was a trip through the desert of 100 miles. Can you imagine going through a desert under those conditions? But that is how much enmity he had towards the Christians. And so he devised a plan to take them into custody and to bring them back. But you see, God had a different plan. And I would say this to you today, that God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your life. And if he hasn't revealed it yet, he will reveal it uh, because he's going to speak to you clearly. And so as he's on this journey, as he's on this journey and he has people with him, as the the, uh, artist demonstrates here, which the Bible tells us, you see in in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, a bright light suddenly comes down from heaven. This blinding light that strikes everybody there into panic. Uh, And as he did, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Can you imagine? God speaking from heaven. Why? Why do you persecute me? And so his murderous journey, his murderous life is suddenly brought to a halt. It comes to a complete stop. And God stepped in without warning to change the life of Paul. And that's an important understanding for us. This still happens today in our lives where God intervenes. He comes without warning and changes our life. Sometimes it comes with the loss of a loved one. Sometimes it comes with a bad medical diagnosis. Sometimes it comes from loss of our finances or loss of our relationships. But whatever it is, suddenly God comes into our life in in many ways in a violent way and gets our attention. And so the sermon note here is this. God sometimes uses a two-by-four to get our attention. You know, we, we would much prefer it would come as some a poem, as some lovely song that we would hear it. You know what I mean? All right, Or some gentle soul would come to us and, and give us the message of God. But you know what the problem with us? We don't hear that. We don't listen. And God knows that for most of us, we need a two-by-four on the side of the head to suddenly recognize what is the will of God. God, what do you want me to do? What message do you have for me? And so for the first time in his proud, self-sustained life, Paul found him in a desperate condition. Not only was he pinned to the ground, he was blind. He couldn't see. And so, to his amazement, he hears this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so, suddenly, Saul found out, I'm persecuting the Messiah. Can you imagine what that had to be like for a deeply religious Jew? I'm persecuting the Messiah. Life could never be the same again. The boldness in his life vanished instantaneously. And so he answered in a meek voice, Who are you, Lord? 
And I'm sure at the same time, in the back of his head, he was saying, don't say Jesus. Don't say Jesus. And the voice came back and said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh, my Lord, Jesus. I can't believe where I've been, what's happened to me, the situation that's happened. And suddenly, a wall comes down, a curtain comes down, and his life would never ever be the same again. And that's what it has to be for you. When you come and you say, Jesus, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? That's the question you ask. And God will tell you who he is. He will tell you what the direction of your life is. He will take over your life and lead your life in a way that you never thought was possible. And that's what happened here. Uh, and you see, it must have hit him like a lightning bolt. And that's how conversion works. You understand? When you come face to face with Jesus Christ, your life can never be the same. And so once that happened, he knew immediately Jesus wasn't dead. He was alive, fully alive. It would transform him and transform his ministry. It would take over every essence of his life. Now, this is the genuine essence of repentance. You want to know if somebody is converted. This is the test of repentance. It is a 180 degree change. You understand the call of life. You know where you were before. You know where you're headed. He changed his mind about Jesus, about the resurrection, and about the followers of Christ instantaneously. He thought Christ was dead. Now he realized he's alive. He understood now that Jesus was the Messiah that the scriptures had promised for thousands of years. And so here's another lesson for you. Some Christians try to impose their own rigid system of conversion. All right? We've all been with people. We wanted to see them converted. We speak to them. And here's the thing. There is no one way that people are converted. All right? Here you see them being converted by a lightning bolt from heaven. Some people are converted by Christian music, some by a message, some by, the, by an impression of the life of a friend. Uh, it's very complicated, but that's how it works. Don't impose your system on what God wants to do. Don't make it complicated. You give the message and you let the Holy Spirit deliver the results. And that's, and that's the fact here. Uh, and so the sermon note for you here is this, salvation and conversion can take many different forms. Now, Acts 26, verse 14, uh, provides an intriguing, re intriguing reflection on Saul's blinding encounter with Christ. Uh, and he, he explained this while he was standing before Agrippa, uh, who was not my great uncle, by the way, in case you're asking that. I'm not related to him, but uh, King Agrippa, uh, Paul, re recall the words that Jesus spoke. And this is, these are the words that only he heard. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to, to kick against the goads. What did that mean, kick against the goads? Well, if you were a first century Jew, you knew full well what that meant. Because animals who would be uh, inclined to kick out at you when they were moved would be put in a position where these iron pricks 
would be put near their legs. So if they tended to lift their legs, the pricks would hit them and it would hurt them and would keep them from kicking. And so you are kicking against the goad, Saul. What did it mean? It means meant that God was delivering and constricting and the Holy Spirit was bringing the message of Christ to him even as he kicked against the goads. And don't you think that part of that kicking was the death of Stephen. You know that as he stood there and, and arranged uh, to hold the coats of the men who hurled down stones to kill Stephen. He was kicking against the goads. He had heard Jesus preach, and yet he kicked against the goads because it violated his predetermined will in terms of what he looked at for religion. He, sir, he saw, saw, saw Stephen. He saw the other followers of Christ who when they were persecuted would not cry out but bow before the throne of God. He saw that. And so I can tell you without a doubt the Holy Spirit was working on him. And let me assure you that for those of you who have family members that you've been speaking to about Christ, they're kicking against the goads. They may not tell you that, but God is constricting them. God is working on them. Uh, and it gives, it gives context. It gives context uh, to this. I'm convinced that Paul heard Jesus preach and teach. Paul was a regular uh, inhabitant of Jerusalem, and Jesus visited Jerusalem often. And so Jesus' ministry must have struck Paul. It must have. And that's why he said kicking against the goads. And here's an important sermon note for you, and that's this. Once you seriously encounter Jesus, you cannot escape. Once you seriously confront Jesus, you cannot escape. Your life will never be the same. But you have to have a serious face-to-face -face encounter. That's what's required. And so we can only conclude that the death of Stephen was one of those goading events. Uh, and I'm sure that he never really recovered from that image of that dear man asking God to forgive the killers who were raining stole, stones upon him as he prayed that God wouldn't punish them. What an amazing thing. And so, so Paul could not have escaped that. He could not have escaped that, that serious impact of the Holy Spirit. And so the lesson here is that we're no match for God. We're no match for God as God moves the pieces in this world and he brings his spirit to us. We are no match for it. And so really, I would say this, when he said, Lord, who are you? That's the question that we have to ask today. Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve? Lord, are you in charge of my life? Are you the captain of my ship? Is everything that I am doing, Lord, in accord with your will? I want to serve you, Lord. Speak to me. I want you to be the pilot of my ship. You know, I laugh when I hear people say, uh, God is my co-pilot. Well, that's, a, that's a, uh, a plane I'm not getting on. Because if God is your pilot, that means you're, God, God is your co-pilot, that means you're in the pilot seat. And friend, I'm not taking that ride. All right? I'm not going through life with you there. But if God is your pilot, if God is your pilot, and that's what you promise to have, then yes, that's a trip I'm going to take because I know everything is going to be in, you, in his will. Who are you, Lord? I am the pilot of your ship. I am the Lord of your soul.
in every way. And that's the essence of this message, to understand this, that this is how God works. And now uh, Ananias comes onto the scene, this, this great servant of God in Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, and in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praising, praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Can you imagine Ananias getting this message? Oh, God, wait a minute. There must be some mistake. This is a bad man. This is a man who is destroying Christianity. He has come to put people in prison, to make them be persecuted, to suffer them. Oh, God, rethink this. There's some mistake. And then Ananias is given more details from God because God talks to them. God talks to us when we have reservations. Acts 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Here's the deal, folks. Walking with Jesus isn't a cakewalk. But the prize is the best. You understand? In this world, it's not a cakewalk. Yes, there's pain, there's suffering, there's sickness, and yes, there's death. You understand? Uh, and Saul suffered more than anybody, really, more than anybody. But he was chosen. He was chosen by God. And I want to say this to you. He was chosen to be the chief evangelist of the, of, the, of the modern world. He would bring the gospel to more people than anybody. He would write almost two-thirds of the New Testament. He was chosen because God said, I need a brilliant man who is well-educated in the Old Testament, who is a gifted orator, who will be able to get up and confound the Jews in the synagogues. I'm choosing you. And I want to say something to you, that God has that same plan for you. He is choosing you for some purpose. This is part of this message, understanding what God's uh, determination is for your life. He's choosing you, all right? For some people, he's choosing you to bring the message of hope to your family, to some, your neighborhood, to some, in greater ministry, to some, to this church, to lifting up this church. But we all have a call on our life. You are chosen for a good destiny. And that's, that's critical to understand this. And, and here it is. I must show him how much pain and suffering he will endure. Here's the thing. Uh, the crucible, and here's the sermon note. The crucible of pain and suffering has been God's worship. It's on the board. This is the truth. The crucible of pain and suffering is God's workshop. I wish it weren't so. I wish it were easier. But God has, he knows us. He knows what it takes to reform us and to cause us to be stronger and to work for him. He knows that this is how we are conformed to the will of God. This is where we learned humility. This is where we learned compassion. This is where we learned it's not all about me, Father, but it's about you. 
This is where we develop our character. Yes, this is where we develop patience. And this is where we develop grace and kindness. How can I go to somebody who's sick and be in sympathy and pray for them if I haven't also suffered sickness? What is it like to be able to walk with somebody who's in pain if I haven't experienced some of that pain? God knows this. And this is why he's called us, so that we can be effective. Uh, and this would also be true for Saul. And in this dramatic citation in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, whenever I get to the point when I think I'm having a rough day, you think you're having a rough day? Read this verse. Are they servants of Christ, Paul said? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open ocean. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger in rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. And have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. And have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern. For all of the churches. How's that for a testimony? How's that? You think you're having a rough day? Put that on the refrigerator. Put that on the refrigerator. Because here is the guy who is the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. The man who will write two-thirds of the New Testament. And look what he went through. Because God was making something great from this man. And so I will submit to you that as you're going through these things, God has a plan for your life. I know you're suffering. I know there are people in this church that are hurting. I hurt for you. I cry for you. I pray for you. But I want you to know that I know that God has a purpose for your life. He does. He does. I don't know what it is, but he does. And in some great way, he's going to use you to, to impact the, the kingdom of God. Uh, and so here he is. Ananias walks in prays for him, and instantaneously the blindness leaves, leaves him. And the new life begins on the spot. On the spot. Uh, and so the response of Saul was electrifying. Electrifying. Because here's what happened. He went from that room immediately into the synagogues. How's that? You want to know if a guy's converted? That's pretty good. I was a Jew yesterday. I was a persecutor yesterday. Today, I'm a, an evangelist for Jesus. What happened? I met Jesus on the road. My life would never be the same. And it says there that he grew more and more powerful, moment by moment, and baffled the Jews living in Damascus 
by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why God called him. Here was a guy who could take the scriptures, who knew the scriptures by heart, and would be able to take those scriptures and now bring them together to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. He walked into the synagogues and proved his case. There was no greater lawyer in the world than Paul. God called him for that purpose. He was unassailable. Uh, and so the Jews were absolutely baffled. Word by word, sentence by sentence, point by point, Saul demonstrated that Christ was the Messiah. He did it through the Old Testament. He did it through the Scriptures. He did it and made an airtight case for who Jesus was. And for those people that heard it, many came to Christ. Many came to Christ. And so there are four significant points here uh, to be made. Four significant points to be made here regarding the leading of God. And this is a point of the message I want to dwell with you. The leading of God. Because God, as you make this prayer, who are you, Jesus? This is, this is where you're headed. First, surprises are always a part of God's leading. You know, there's not a script. I can't give you a script and say, well, this is good. This is what's going to happen in your life. This is where God is. No, I can't do that. Because you see, surprise is exactly how God leads. And so Saul's surprise came as a bolt of lightning. Did you think he, he was planned for that? No. And it's the same for us. We have lesser bolts of lightning, but not less important. Uh, Abraham, when God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, you think that was a surprise? He had no idea really who God was, but when he heard that voice, he got up and left and took his family. That was a surprise, and the world would never be the change, would never be the same. The lesson for us is this. If you are waiting for God to fill in the specific details of the call on your life, you will never take the first step. You got it? You wait for the surprise, and when the surprise comes, you understand it's God, and you walk out in favor of God. Second, the surprise always intensifies our need for faith. What do you think? You didn't expect this. You didn't expect this message. You didn't expect this two by four. You didn't expect this not diagnosis. And suddenly, you now are on your knees asking God, what does it mean, Lord? What does it mean? And what happens is your faith is elevated. And God understands that. And it is the faith that God gives you which is going to redirect your life. Our faith says, I trust you, Lord. I don't understand it. I don't know where this is going. I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you. And that message resonates through the world as people look at you and know that you're going through difficult times, and yet they see how you handle it because you trust and have faith in God. Third, stepping out in faith always brings clarification of God's plan. That's right. Because you step out in faith. You don't understand it. You're blind. You don't know what's happening. But you step out in small steps and serve him. God, I will serve you in faith. Look, this church is a result of something just like this. This wasn't planned out on paper. You think I had a plan that said when I reach the age of 70, I got a great retirement plan. I'm going to start a church, we'll build a building, we'll put it all together, and this is, no, no. Suddenly I'm cut off, I have no relationship with any church, I'm cut off, uh, and Linda says to me, what are we going to do? And I said to her, we're going to start a church. 
She said, you're 70 years old. We're going to start a church. We're going to start a church. And I stepped out in faith, not knowing where my next step would be. And I'm pleased to say God has lifted me up, and you are all here as a result of that. And you walk with me, and God is blessing you. And now, down on Golden Gate, God is giving us a place where we will have church for years to come. Fourth, obedience always stimulates growth. And here's the thing. God is looking for you to be obedient. So when this all coalesces and it all comes together and you step out, God wants you to be obedient, to walk with him, to accept him, to know that this is his will in your life. Obedience. There is nothing greater than obedience. It drives, drives the roots of your faith even much deeper than ever. And so here's the lesson for you today when you leave here. I want you to think of this. Lord, who are you? Who are you? I want you to make that prayer. Who are you, Lord? Because he will speak. He will speak powerfully to you. He will tell you who he is. He will tell you what the direction of your life needs to be. He will tell you what steps you need to do. He will call you into ministry. And I believe each and every one of you are chosen for some greater faith basis. Every one of you. All right? We're not all going to be missionaries or evangelists, but in some poignant way, God will call you and ask you to step up. I see it right now in this church. I see ministries being evidence that I never thought I would see. I see people that are doing things to, to bring this new church to, to conclusion. I see talents being poured before the altar of God, and God is blessing it because you walk in faith. You don't sit there in your house waiting for a meteor to come in with a stone saying, hey, here's the plan doesn't work like that, folks. It doesn't work like that. It requires faith. It requires faith. And so you heard it today. Leave today with this image in your life. Leave today with this impression that this is where you have to be. Leave today with the fact that you're going to say to Jesus, Lord, who are you? Who are you? I want to know you the way Paul knew you. I want to know you the way Martin Luther knew you. I want to be have that personal one on one relationship so that I can leave here and be a lighthouse for a world that is lost. Amen, church? Let's bow in prayer. As I said, we will have the prayer team be up here during the last song and, and be available for you at the end of church. I will be there also. And so I would say this, that for somebody today, this may be a time for you to accept Jesus. You may never really have done this before, and perhaps this is the time. Or perhaps this is the time where you ask God for greater clarification in your life. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Father? That's the question. And so as you leave here, fortified in the Spirit, having heard a message from the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you know that Jesus was in this room today. You know it. You can feel it. Your spirit echoes with that truth. I pray that you will resonate with this message this week, that you will reflect on it, that it will empower you to greater service in every possible way as we get closer and closer to him every day of our life. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.